Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat apocalypse. What's up, Familia? We have a really great episode today on Power of X-Men. We got Steve Fox. Friend of the podcast and author currently of Dark X-Men, the five-issue miniseries covering Madeline Pryor's team of Dark (laughs) X-Men. You know, one thing I I wanted to ask him, but we didn't. I was like, okay, so Madeline Pryor is leading a Dark X Men. Also, a major player in Dark X Men in the past was Nate Gray, and but I think I I inserted Nate as much as I could have in this interview. Unfortunately, you did. Yeah. I mean, listen, anytime Madeline Pryor's around, I'm just gonna always think of Nate. So, womp, womp. But, yeah, when she was she was so hot for her son from another dimension. <laughs> it is not her son from another dimension. This is Gene and Cyclops's Age of Apocalypse counterparts, genetic material coming together. In not technically not her son. Technically, she, a, as as Steve gets into an interview, anytime <laughs> you have to add technically to an incest discussion, you've lost. <laughs> but it was a really great interview we talk about dark x-men we talk about dazzler he teased a lot of what's to come obviously the x-men are going through a really big change right now with fall of x and then we got the announcements in january that we have the you know the rise of the power of 10 and fall the house of x are those the titles yeah okay i'm like yeah i can't keep up with any of these announcements anymore but it, it he's such a great great energy to have he brought back sammy he brought back Sammy Scott, Sammy the Fish Boy. And one day they joked we could get Sammy the Fish Man. Days of future fish man. <laughs> um, before we roll out into the interview, PulseCon on Friday, you know, we were we were eagerly anticipating everyone was like on on standby, but we didn't get any new announcements. Hasbro's PulseCon last year, we got the retro card wave, which had one of your favorite characters, Multiple Man, which is a great yeah. figure. I, I've got three of them back there. Uh, they're all like yelling at each other. Yeah, we didn't really get any X-Men announcements. Um, I mean, the, the the closest thing was Justice. And he's, you know, he's a mutant, but he's not an X-Men. Yeah, Justice, uh, Namorita, and Namor, Savage Namor, which Savage I, Namor. I mean, look, props on that. I, but you know, we're doing those '90s cuts. I'm happy with Savage Namor, but that's it in in terms of you know any potential X characters. It was just those three, and muy triste because I think there's a lot of rumors happening out there right now regarding Wolverine, the 50th anniversary, and some two packs we could be seeing. But maybe they're saving that for later in the year. I'm sure we will get a Wolverine and like Hulk two pack, and we'll see. Maybe an Albert. Maybe an Albert. Maybe an Albert. Al- All right, Familia, here is our interview with Steve Fox. Okay, Steve, I have a very important question for you. Why is Nate Gray Madeline Pryor's one true soulmate? <laughs> 
please explain because it, it worked for game of thrones uh and and frankly twitter needs more interesting things to argue about than who's more powerful than someone else let's give them some incest let's give them some metaphysical cross universe incest <laughs> at least it'll freshen up a tuesday no i mean come on how i mean nate is Jean Grey's alternate son, and she he is the genetic byproduct of Cyclops and Jean from Age of Apocalypse, and Madeline gave birth to Cable. So it's his alternate universe mom's clone. In what sick, twisted way is that incest? How? I think if you ever find yourself explaining something is not <laughs> technically incest, you've already lost. You know, cloning your mom is still your mom. If you're in a conversation about incest and you ever use the word technically, I think you've you've seeded the argument. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so why is Maggot secretly the world's best X-Man? Because he's a freak and the X-Men need more freaks. I'm at, like all jokes aside, I am so pro visible mutation. I love all the classic X-Men, but it's extremely funny that like the top 2% uh are beautiful models with with really useful powers. And I would love some more weirdos with outside digestive tracts in the form of little <laughs> slugs. Plus, he comes with his own pets. That's adorable. I mean, it is adorable. Thank you. Thank you for bringing him back for Dark X-Men. Of course, I was yeah. happy to. And and he got that unlimited spotlight earlier this uh, last year, yeah. which was, it was fun to see him have his own story. Havoc's best outfit is the Goblin Prince look. True or false? You know... I th- I will say I think by the time I'm done we we'll, we will have run it into the ground, and the next time you see it may not be on havoc. <gasps> oh oh shit! Okay. And okay. the The other tidbit I will drop is as a kid I always thought first off I think havoc has had amazing suits. I've always loved his weird like red gauntlet uh outfit from the later part of x factor and i tried really hard to figure out if i could justify it for dark x-men but it it just didn't make the cut i love that costume so much it's such a great costume um speaking of dark x-men congratulations on dark x-men thank you it's uh very overwhelming um as you, as you know, uh, my, my first brush with the X-Men in comics was something out of continuity. So kind of like going from X-Men 92, House of 92, to doing like Unlimiteds and the annual, and now a horror-based X-Men miniseries is really... Uh, it just feels like I'm like knocking down my bucket list almost like too fast. Like the universe knows something I don't. Well, I feel like the internet, when they were announcing the Fall of X titles and Dark X-Men came on, like the internet broke. Everyone was going crazy. I mean, you have Madeline Pryor leading a team, and she's a character that inspires so much. Was was Dark X-Men your your brainchild? Did editorials just say, hey, we we have Dark X-Men. Do you want to write it? What's your take on it? How did How did that sort of come to be? It was actually a really fun mix, and I can say that about just about all my marvel projects so far like when i did the firestar based annual that was just hey here's an x-men annual and like here are the characters who are going to be really busy right before then and right after then so what do you want to do and that was about it with dark x-men um jordan white came to me with the title madeline havoc and that cb sabolsky thought it would be cool if i could use albert somehow but that that was it everything else beyond that the plot, the rest of the cast, how it was going to intersect with Fall of X. Um, that was all me going away for a little while and, and brainstorming. Uh, and it was very intimidating at first. You know, Madeline Pryor has only been written by a couple people. 
<laughs> and yeah. some of those people are Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, which is not yeah. exactly like an easy act to feel like you can follow. And most recently, um, you know, I got approached before. So Dark Web wasn't all drawn. It was all written when I got hit up for Dark X-Men. So I knew that she was, you know, on the cusp of having a big crossover event where her status quo was going to change quite a bit. Uh, I've been such a fan of everything Zeb Wells has done in the line recently. So it, it was very intimidating to try to follow on the heels of that. And I'll say a funny story for that, too, is, um, you know, our cover artist is Steven Segovia, who did Hellions, did most of Hellions. And I was so nervous of being compared to Hellions. And then Jordan was like, oh, yeah, we got Steven Segovia for covers. It's like, OK, cool, great. And then the the first cover design mock up was done because the logos have to be done before the covers are finished they used the Hellions cover to mock it up. So I was like, you're uh. just r- rubbing it in at this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, thankfully we're a different book. <laughs> we just happened to share a couple of cast members and a very talented cover artist. So like, what was your, what was your rationale behind like the rest of the lineup? Because it's, it's like an interesting group of characters. I knew, um, so, you know, there's been a Dark X-Men title before during Dark Reign, and the angle on that was more, um, like, political intrigue dark. It was, you know, Norman Osborn's overseeing different things, yada, yada. So I really wanted, if we're going to do a horror angle, if we're going to be basing out of the Limbo Embassy, I wanted monsters, and I wanted characters who you wouldn't otherwise see putting aside their differences to fight for the mutant cause. So, you know, that's part of the X-Men franchise we all love. Sabretooth, Mystique, Magneto, all these different villains have kind of crossed the the line to do good things for mutant kind as a whole. Uh, you're never going to see that with Implate or Zazel. Um, Zero doesn't really care about anything. <laughs> so I wanted characters that you would only find in a, a very perverse scenario for the X-Men. It, so is, is this the start of like the Draco redemption arc? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like we have X-Men Blue coming. X-Men Blue yes. Origins. Yes. Yeah. I, actually, I love that Chuck Austin has a good sense of humor about his time in the X-Men books because you know I was reading those as they came out and he got a lot of crap. Obviously, he's gone on to do so many other cool things. And I think if you go back now, what I see from people most often is they hear how infamous the Draco is or this or that is. They go back and read it and they're like, oh, it's, it's not bad. It's like a normal X-Men run. You know, there are highs yeah. and there are lows. Um, but I think, th- you know, the old adage that there are no bad characters, there are only bad execution. Like, I think that holds true. And Azazel ended up being a huge surprise favorite for me to write. Um, he's also fun in that every time he appears, he kind of changes his personality a little bit you know he goes from being this like medieval devil to being a pirate and now he's a little grimier in my take so the thing about a character who's lived so long who's pulled in archetypes as part of his personality is that you can be a little flexible with it um so i like that he's part of what i call my trench coat brigade between gambit (laughs) maggot azazel and implate these guys just walking around in their big dingy coats. It's, it's been a lot of fun to chew into. Speaking of of Chuck Austin Redemption, I did just help bring back Sammy the Fish Boy. So I know. So uh, I was yeah. about to say that right now because we, <laughs> we, we've had Chuck Austin on the podcast before, and I was like, why did Sammy have to die? And because Sammy was supposed to be that point of view character for Juggernaut and sort of humanize mm. him, and you brought him back. Thank you. We Justice for yeah. Sammy. And I'm thinking, too, you know, so I actually am a big fan of how Chuck Austin wrote North Star, especially for that time period. Mm -hmm. And I I credit that run with, like, making North Star a regular X-Men character. But there's also, like, a kid who dies horribly uh, early on there that North Star is trying to save. He's got, like, an explosive power and he can't reach a hospital in time. 
Should have brought that kid back. I mean, listen, I'm pretty happy with Sammy. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things that you you do it. You're knowing that you're kind of doing it like for a certain segment of readership, but that's the fun of unlimited is like, you can, you can just play to Twitter once or twice. <laughs> you know, just to, to pivot really quickly before I throw it back to you, Scott, I, I was talking to Pat Loika, Steve, about you. And we just, we were talking about how great X-Men 92 was and how you have such a rich knowledge base for all these characters and everything and how you can tell really good, compelling stories. So we were singing your praises and the fact that you brought back someone like Sammy, it just goes to show (laughs) how in tune you are with these stories. And, you know, the Austin era sort of gets forgotten about, you know, sort of dismissed, but you've been able to, you know, bringing back Sammy. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It, it, your stories are just so good and compelling. So thank you. Your, thank you. your knowledge and passion comes through, as we've discussed before on the podcast. Thank you. And I should say, too, you know, I, I co-wrote that arc with Steph Williams. So that was a lot of fun to do. Um, the Juggernaut story and the other Hellfire losers this year. Um, but no, you know, it's a nice it's in in a meta sense. It's like nodding to fandom. But also it makes sense for Juggernaut that that would be a big priority for him. I mean, it was a nice little humanizing yeah. moment to be like oh, here's one of my big mess ups in regards to the mutant community. Here's that fixed. And there's only, you know, it's like three panels, but it helps show why he would want to be an X-Man and, and you know, that softer side of Kane that we all know and love. Could could we be seeing Sammy in Fall of X? <laughs> I actually, I will say, I don't think anything's going to come of it, but we did joke <laughs> on the Slack the other day that, that, you know, maybe we can one day show Sammy the fish man, <laughs> like <laughs> some alternate future story where Sammy's grown up and taken on great importance in the X-Men mythos. You never know. Stranger things have happened. Okay. Uh, Sammy and Nurse Annie and Carter. That's the back. joke I go. made. <laughs> that, yeah, that it would be. I was like, we'll bring that nurse's kid back, too. He can be the big bad guy. <laughs> I mean, last time we did see him, it looked like he was being possessed by Cassandra Nova. So I know. You never mm. know what will turn into a story down the line. Mm, mm, mm. Anyways, <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott. I'm sorry, Scott. No, no, no. No, like we, we, we love a kid with just like a bad vibe. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like on that, like, were there any characters you wanted to use that like you couldn't? So I won't say who there was someone in, in my initial pitch that didn't end up making the cut because they were busy in another book. Um, there was no one that was like off limits. Uh, it's just that we do get together because we're more coordinated than like the average comic line. Um, we have a character draft where before each new, you know, era or, or big launch of books, we sit down and make sure that you know, two people don't have crucial Emma Frost stories that are going to uh, contradict each other. And also that all the important characters are getting used. So Dark X-Men, originally Gambit was not part of the cast. Um, but we sat down in a big group with all the Fall of X writers and realized no one else had a Gambit story going. And Jerry suggested I take him for Dark X-Men. And he ended up being really crucial, um, especially because I already had Carmen Cruz who had based her original outfit on Gambit cosplay. So it ended up being really neat to actually get them on panel together for the first time. I mean, listen, the the entire cast you have, however it came to be, it, it's incredible. I And so many people were so excited online. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the reactions. And... I try to avoid as much as oh. I can. That is not for me. <laughs> that's I, you true, know, that's I... true. I, it, it, the internet is a vitriol place. It, yeah it's not I mean, it's no longer twitter it's x right what is it called oh, now? i don't know i will say called. you know lots of love gets through i i feel like anytime this comes up it ends up sounding like 
we're just constantly barraged by hate or that things are terrible. Lots of people are so great. Like a lot of the engagement online is really positive, really enthusiastic. And even if it's not positive, it's respectful. But because of the way the internet feels, you can get 10 really nice comments and then one jerkwad that ruins your day. So I try to just like, if it's not tagged, if it's not sent my way, I do not go looking for anything. Um, But it is cool. I, I will say... I, you know, I saw the enthusiasm for the cast. I underestimated how obscure some of the characters were because <laughs> there were a lot of people being like, who's the the weird guy with the respirator? Who's the like, who's that Japanese guy with the, you know, this techno organic stuff? And I was like, what do you mean you don't know Implate? Everyone knows Implate. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was surprised how many of the, uh, especially whenever Marvel tags you uh, on like the official account, like, yeah. Your, your day is just shot because a lot of the people who follow that account are following it for like movies and stuff and they don't really follow it for the comics but the amount of comments that were like who's this red nightcrawler <laughs> like <laughs> I was like oh i guess uh i guess maybe i'm too deep in the sauce <laughs> but x-men first class sir please watch x-men first class ma'am here it is <laughs> i just you know. used i can't tell you where but i just used another character who's in x-men first class who i forgot is in x-men first class until i had to google reference for that character uh, i'm not a i'm not i'm no fan whatsoever of the fox live action i think you're softer onto them than i am um i have like no good things to say about the fox <laughs> franchises but it is perpetually amusing how often i google character reference and mm-hmm. then i'm reminded that like oh they had a callisto it, it was by yeah. no means callisto but there was a character named callisto in this film well Steve, I don't know if you know, Scott is a big fan of Eric Dane as multiple man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he has posters, posters of Dr. Was he McSteamy or Mc... What, uh, what was it? He was, uh, Mc... was he McDreamy? McDreamy. McDreamy. Yeah. Scott loves McDreamy as multiple man. That, that, that was less for his betrayal of Jamie Madrox and more because I was a confused gay child and was like, oh, oh I get it now. <laughs> Okay, I support yeah. this for you. I mean, I'm being, <laughs> being so facetious to you, Scott. Yeah. But wait, I so- will. I, I will say paradoxically, I don't think X Men: The Last Stand is like as bad as people make it out to be. So I may not okay. like any of those movies. Yeah. But really. I don't think out of these bad movies, that one's uniquely bad. I I like X Three in the context that it's the dystopian timeline, and in Days of Future Past, they erase it from the timeline. So in that context, I can forgive <laughs> The Last Stand. I will say one of my easiest, one of my easiest gets, I'm not an emotional crier. Like if there's a sad scene, I will not cry. But if there is a line in a movie that's like, hold the line, tears. You're bawling. You're you're ugly crying. So that little last battle where they're like, hold the line. And Magneto's moving the bridge. Brett Ratner got me. Well, I have nothing nice to say about Brett Ratner. But (laughs) I I will say... That scene never made the most sense to me because the X-Men are there to protect the people that are trying to cure them. It's never been able to click in my head. I I think other people have tried to um, defend it, which is which is great. But I haven't um, I haven't been able to, like, digest it. But speaking of lightning rods, Madeline Pryor incites so much passion with fans. And how is her story different this time around because historically maddie has lacked a lot of agency and it's very evident in dark x-men number one she has plenty of agency you're giving her agency how how is the character different this time around 
Yeah, I mean, I was incredibly intimidated when Jordan, you know, reached out about a Maddie focused book for exactly the reasons you say. And also because, you know, some of the most passionate fans online are Gene and Wanda fans, and Maddie's what? kind of in really? the. Really? Really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Maddie falls under that umbrella of like really powerful woman who's had stories where she's lost her mind and all of this. Uh, but because that ground is so well covered, and because Dark Web finally brought her and Jean to kind of a, a certain plateau of, of peace and recognition, I knew from the start, like, I'm not going to write Maddie losing control. I'm not going to write Maddie going crazy. She's not struggling with her sanity, nothing like that. What has happened to put her not on the back foot, but in an interesting place of conflict is that she did finally reach a place with the X-Men where they're like, you know, we respect each other. Like, you're going to give me my space. I'm going to give you your space. Gene and I are cool enough. And then the world goes to hell. Yeah. And I think that for someone who has only existed for a couple of years in universe, yeah. you know, because she's a clone that was accelerated. Maddie's only been alive for a couple of years total to reach this place where it's like, okay, I've gotten a lot of the things I wanted, but then everyone went to, crap i think that is is kind of like the the intro angle on maddie for me here um but i wanted to show her as more confident as more secure as more stable because when i first fell in love with madeline was before she was revealed as a clone and she is a really active part of the team you know she's the only person in the outback who doesn't have powers but she's pulling her weight you know she's sassy she's got attitude uh and in a lot of ways at the time you know, she had a little more autonomy than Jean had because she was being portrayed as a little more sure of herself. Um, so I wanted to be able to kind of bridge the gap between the Maddie we saw in that green jumpsuit and the Maddie in Dark Web. Oh, well, I, I mean, hey, thank you for that. I, I think Chris has said this countless times, Chris Claremont, which is... I was going to say first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're BFFs. We know Chris so well here, no. Um, but I think Claremont has said many times that the way he epitomized Madeline was when Scott was like, are you Jean? And she punches him and it was supposed to yeah. show that she was yeah. her own character, her own agency, very different than Jean. And that Scott got lucky that she was a one in a million chance that he found someone who happened to look like his dead lover, which <laughs> I, I think that's supposed to be a very Hitchcockian idea, but she was created with so much more than just Jean in mind. But because history played out the way it did, um, she has close ties to Jean. And I'm curious, how do you how do you see the effects of Jean's death and how it's played out on her? Because, you know, one of the things we always see about Jean and Maddie is that they're always at odds with each other. And here we kind of saw that her death, you know, she did something to Madeline and she wanted to be a little bit more active. So I'm curious what your approach to that was. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, with the disclaimer that, like, the only thing that's canon, the only thing that's text is what makes it to the page, right? Like, I have my conceptions, but the next writer after me could have a different conception. If it's not on the page, it's not, like, you know, don't put it in a wiki. But to me, I really felt like Dark Web was them putting their beef to rest, you know? That moment where Gene has Maddie do the call for the X-Men... That I found very inspiring, and that's certainly part of something that leads into the first issue of Dark X-Men. That's, you know, it galvanized Maddie in a certain way because, you know, the thing about Maddie is she's always confident. That doesn't mean she's always right. 
And I think that's part of the fun of Jean, too, is that Jean is a very strong-willed person, and she's made some wild decisions at times. Jarbs, please don't come at me. I'm being very <laughs> respectful. I love Jean, too. But, you know, we don't love these characters because they're flawless. We love them because of the ways their their personalities, you know, work out. But I think Maddie is very confident. She's made some missteps in the past. And she held this grudge against Jean for a long time. And the way Jerry portrayed that resolving was basically like, you could have asked, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're women who shared a great deal of pain. We've shared a great deal of experiences and we're adults. And if I can make your life better, I'm going to do that. And this is how. So dark web to me was resolving a lot of those long simmering tensions. Um, do I think that Maddie cried over knowing Jean died? No, probably not. I, I think that they have a respectful place. But because Jean was taken out of Maddie's life not long after they reached that respectful place, I wouldn't guess they are close. I wouldn't guess that they were emotionally, you know, invested in one another in the way that like Storm and Jean would be. But I think that Maddie certainly found a level of mutual acknowledgement with Jean that she had lacked for decades before in her history. So I think it galvanized Maddie. I don't think Maddie's like crying about it at night. You know, <laughs> she's like, it, you know what? Jean's gone. She helped inspire me, and now someone's got to step up to fill this this void, and I'm the woman to do it, and I'm going to burn anyone who gets in my way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't see her crying in the way that she probably cried for Nate. <laughs> ah, sorry. Well, I mean, it is tough to lose a child, so... <laughs> but to, to, to pivot, so we saw Ben Riley briefly uh, in the first issue, uh, and this obviously builds off a of dark web. Are we going to see more... Ben slash Chasm and Maddie before the end. Oh my god, wait, is he going to be wearing the Goblin Prince outfit? <laughs> no, but you're getting close. Um, so Chasm is is obviously coming back. He's on the cover for four, so it's no great big spoiler to say. Um, it, I will say, you know, Chasm doesn't become like a central part of where the story's going because this isn't a Spider-Man book, but we saw him imprisoned in the Limbo Embassy, and um, you know, the spider office was really great about coordinating with us where we talked to them about like, hey, you know, the limbo embassy is kind of a Spider-Man thing too. We lost last saw it in dark web. Like what's going on? Is anything popping up for Ben in the next couple months? And they were really excited that we wanted to use him and feature him a bit because they didn't have imminent plans. Um, obviously, Spider-Man's about to go into gang war, which, um, you know, that's another one of my hats is to <laughs> put on my Spider-Woman hat and do that story. Um, but I was, you know, I've always loved Ben Riley when I was a kid. Uh, I thought the hoodie costume was incredibly cool. Oh, I, I still love it. Oh my God, the Mayfix figure with the hoodie costume. I love it. I like that all the 90s stuff is kind of having a resurgence style wise because I think we spent way too long trying to seem like cool and ironic, mocking some of those decisions. And sure, you know, having a million pouches is kind of funny, but the jacket era, like to me, nothing's ever going to be cooler than having like a cool jacket over spandex. <laughs> oh, I agree. I like rogues, crystal, like I yes. just love it. Yeah. You can't top that. I mean, the Avengers never looked cooler than when they all had their little leather flight jackets. <laughs> Um, which I think I included in X-Men 92 uh, for their cameo. Yeah. I was like, yeah. we got to do the jacket. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so Ben Ben will be appearing. I was really excited to get to write him a little bit. And I actually got to write him a little bit somewhere else that hasn't been announced yet. Um, he is a favored character of mine. And I, I was sad when the Chasm stuff happened because I loved the Beyond arc so much. Like It was really cool to see Ben Riley kind of come into his own again. 
but that's what's fun about ongoing soap operas is that you have the the tragic falls and then you you root for a character to improve again yeah i think completely and i mean what is you know a story centered on madeline Pryor, if not tragic fall and then you know rebuilding i have to ask you what's your favorite non-inferno maddie story it's just the Outback era in general. Uh, I mean, yeah. I really enjoyed her through that. Uh, I love her and Havoc's like first real date where they go dancing. Oh um, God, that seems beautiful. I thought that was really lovely. Um, I like the little Norse crossover where she becomes Anandine or however you yeah. pronounce it for a minute. We we did that. Uh, we read that for book club like a year and a half, two years ago. Everyone loved that that crossover. Yeah, I I really consider it. So the the Goblin Queen, the alternate reality one in this, she never gets a different name because I thought the point was that she feels that she's the true Goblin Queen. But I was like, is there any justification to calling her Anodyne? Not really. (laughs) Maybe. I uh, I guess it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Um, And and when Maddie is is Anodyne, she is the big spoon with Scott, which is hysterical. Yeah. I, just, I love panel that we saw it. I loved it. Yeah, I just love when she was I, I love pre-Inferno where she was really active, um, even though she didn't have powers, because I think that was something that um our good buddy Chris uh <laughs> often liked to do. Is, <laughs> our, our, <laughs> often one of us to, talks to him. It's not us. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> um I I think that uh, it it was something he often liked to do is to have these characters who didn't have powers, but but stayed on the margins of stories and were still really involved. And I think that's one of the fun, unique things about the Marvel Universe is that there's usually a grounding element to say like, oh, this has one foot in our world. Here's someone who doesn't have invincibility, but is still going on adventures. So uh, I love that. And then also your background. I mean, I love Mutant X as a kid. Uh, I didn't go back and reread it for this because obviously, you know, it's not in continuity but um i loved it i had the the action figures so it was probably the first time i ever saw madeline prior to be honest um was that version of her and what happens to you know spoiler alert but what happens to angel in in my book is a nod to the fallen uh, i think the solicit for issue two is called like it says something about like you know fallen attacking or whatever so I thought that was a homage. I think that last yeah. page on in issue two, oh my god! I mean, it just it, it, so many DMs coming in about it. I mean, it was such a probably a lot of angry ones because Warren doesn't get a lot of stories where he's just having a good time. But no. uh... <laughs> but, but a good Warren story is him being tortured. So. <laughs> Warren is a tough character to crack because in a lot of ways, I feel like Rick Remender had the last word on him. Oh, the um, Dark Angel saga was phenomenal. It's very hard to top and it can be really hard sometimes when a character gets such a defining story. And for Archangel to have been a part of his arc for like 30 years at that point, uh, and then for that to be so good and so final, you know, I don't think that's any, there's no mistake that that's the point at which it became kind of harder to tell Warren stories. Um, but also in the context of Fall of X, I thought having all the original X-Men in bad places made sense. You know, Iceman can barely hold himself together. Gene's dead. Scott's uh, locked up. Warren's the Fallen. Beast is Beast. Beast is just <laughs> always going to be Beast. I was about to say that. Yeah, and Xavier is off on his off on his island. So I thought thematically it made sense. Like, oh, things are bad for for all of the original characters. Pulling on that thread, you have Alex say, 
I'm the closest thing left yeah. to yeah. an original X-Men. And it's like, oh yeah, actually you you are. <laughs> yeah. Him and Lorna, they're the last ones standing. Well, how do you feel about him and Lorna versus him and Maddie? I don't have like a great big shipping war stance on it. I, I love a lot of Alex and Lorna stories. I'm a huge fan of of Peter David X Factor moving into JM Dimatius X Factor. You know, I, I that had such a huge impact on me. The Larry Stroman outfits, like it's hard to beat that era. Um, I think that that's another case though where it really felt like their story was done. Um, going through the Austin era, going through the time since then. Once you circle the like breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together that many times, um, and especially because Lorna, she also had stories about whether or not she was going to have her sanity, her autonomy, uh, you know, a say so over who she was. I think it was a good step for her as a character to no longer be part of a an ampersand. You know, it's yeah. you can have Polaris stories, you can tell Polaris stories that do not have to circle around a Summer's brother. So I think that was good for her as a character. Um, and I think the thing about Maddie and Alex that's so fun is that it's not particularly healthy. It's not particularly uh, uh, standardized and and uh, heteronormative. <laughs> it, it is. It does have that kind of like kinky um, element. It has that sort of power play element, and I just thought that was fun. It's it's interesting to play with. But I will say, I, I write them as if they love each other. And that goes both ways. Like, I don't think Madeline takes Alex for granted. I just think she's the Dom <laughs> in the relationship. I mean, 100%. I mean, that, that is evident from Inferno. Um, but with, with, with Maddie and Havoc, I, I have a question. So because Mutant X is technically an alternate universe, but it's our Alex, I don't think it's ever been answered or tackled if he remembers the events of Mutant X. And understanding what you say in an interview is not canon until it makes it to paper. In your own perspective or writing Havoc um, and you know, looking at Madeline, do you think he remembers Mutant X? Do you think he remembers Scotty? Was it just a... He just woke up one day and it was Nurse Annie. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think is sort of um, his approach or his perspective? With the caveat before that, you know, obviously my answer is not canon. Um, I don't think it's ever been established that he doesn't remember it. Agreed. I think the idea is supposed to be that, you know, our Alex went to that reality and lived in that body and experienced all of that. If there was ever a moment or a line that, you know, de defines that he doesn't remember it, I don't recall it. I don't uh, either. Know, I, I didn't did, have time I, to I go back and read every Havoc yeah. appearance. Doesn't the Peter Milligan run that followed Chuck Austin explicitly say he remembers it? I feel like there's something there where, because that's where Nocturne comes into the main universe for a minute. Yeah. Like, I, I, I feel like there's something that acknowledges it, at least briefly. I think it makes sense for him to remember it. Um, I think if he remembers that and Uncanny Avengers, then he probably has a huge therapy bill with now having like two unmade children. I mean, I think though he's like, oh, wasp, forget it. Like, that's just he got the time and date where Katie could be conceived, and they both elected not to do it. So, I just think it it probably falls under this is too big of a thing for a human mind to constantly be comprehending, like to know that you've lived alternate lives. You just got a bottle of that up and throw it in the vault. Um, <laughs> 
But it would help establish why he feels so strongly about Madeline because yeah. their actual time together in the 616 was relatively brief. Yep. Um, so if he also got to see this other potential for Madeline, it would certainly help explain why he's got that extra commitment to her. So I didn't do anything to contradict it. I feel like old stories like that, because, you know, for all of us, we're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We love it. But I was also like 25 years old and we can't really you have to be smart about what you do with that in modern comics because you don't want to be turning new readers off by being like, oh, I don't get this at all because I didn't read an alternate universe story that ended in like, what, 99 or something. And, and speaking of Havoc and Janet, thanks for the shade in X-Men Unlimited to JVD's fashion <laughs> capabilities. Well, you know, I, in the Webweaver universe, I write her as very strong and established and powerful. So I figured Jumbo could... Uh, Jumbo can be know. sassy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so since we have Azazel in Dark X-Men and we have X-Men Blue Origins coming, are you doing any back-end work? Yeah, I'll actually say it from a reader perspective, it's fairly separated. Like, you're not going to see things in Dark X-Men that, like you go from a point in Dark X-Men to X-Men Blue Origins. But back channel, Cy and I have been talking about that for like a year. So as soon as the idea for that one shot came up, he and I started discussing logistics and what made sense from a story perspective. I got to read the script really early. So I know what's in store for that one shot. Um, it definitely spins more directly out of Uncanny Spider-Man. But there are little tidbits here and there in Dark X-Men to play into that. Um, I definitely recommend fans of that extended tree, uh, family tree, pick up the one shot. Um, but it's not something where like I hand Azazel off to Psy for an issue or anything like that. So you're talking about ampersands before, and um, you use M-Plate. And M-Plate, you know, for listeners who might not be familiar with the guy <laughs> with the respirator... Uh, he's mostly known as a Gen X villain and like specifically Monet's villain brother. What's it like writing him in a story that has absolutely nothing to do with Monet? I wouldn't say it has absolutely nothing to do with Monet because uh. we do. No, I mean, she doesn't really appear. She, <laughs> yeah. I will say she appears in one panel of a flashback. So she is technically on a page of Dark X-Men, but she's not like part of the book. Um it was fun for that reason. So the original reason I wanted in plate was because he is, you know, a terrible monster, but we saw him come to Krakoa. I was very inspired by that, that panel in house of X where we see apocalypse lead the villains through the gateway in plates on that panel. Azazel's in that panel. Callisto who readers know now know shows up in dark X-Men is on that panel. Um, even Animax who's on that first spread uh, in dark X-Men. She's in that panel. So that was the first reason I thought of in plate. Um, but I also thought it was fun to, separate him from gen x for a moment i think she he has maybe only appeared in gen x stories now that i think about it because even when he yeah. comes back that was another volume of gen x um but the monet family debt the saint Croix debt is what draws him into dark x-men in the first place uh so that was a weird little plot line mentioned in the fred van linty what weapon x was it called X-Force or Weapon X? I think it was called Weapon X. But they called X, themselves yeah. Weapon X-Force in the book. So Azazel appears at the very end of that, and he mentions having a debt on Monet's family line. That never went anywhere. So I was like, okay, bingo, connective tissue. I can bring this in. Um, I think it's cool to bring characters out of their original context, because that's how you start creating different connections. 
Because otherwise, you're only ever going to use Implate when it's a Monet storyline, right? Like, that's why you want to kind of cross-pull characters. Same thing with Zero. He showed up, you know, in the Generation Hope era. He was part of the Five Lights. He menaced some younger students in Storm. But he hasn't showed up a lot since then because he was very context-specific. So I think when you start to mix and match characters, that's when they really start to feel like they can kind of take off and take a life of their own. I will say, so, you know, Dark X-Men was always planned as a miniseries. On the very first call, Jordan was like, we're not trying to launch this into something longer. Complete story five issues. If this was a book that had, you know, had the capacity to continue or whatever... Implate is definitely a character I would have liked to dive into even deeper in a future arc. I think he probably would have played bigger role down the line, but I'm really happy to have him kind of, you know, wheezing and sulking around the corner. And, um, you know, once he pops off in this book, he gets to pop off in a fun way. Well, I, I love what you just said about how there's certain characters that get stuck in this cycle and you have to break them free of that and we can have an M plate story without being an M story and you know etc you know Polaris and Havoc don't have to be together all the time yeah. they can stand on their own I thank you for that I mean that's just something as readers we we, we love we're always going to be nostalgic for the characters how they used to be but it's also so exciting when you see a writer come along and evolve the character from respecting where they came from but also looking ahead towards the future so Nothing else to add, but just thank you for having that perspective because it's extremely refreshing. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fun. And it's also why I wanted to use Carmen in this book is because, you know, Carmen was situated in Children of the Atom. We haven't seen her since then, but it was like, okay, let's pull her out. Let's show her interacting with other members of the community. And, and that's how characters kind of take off and go. What I said earlier about, you know, Chuck Austin picking Northstar for Uncanny X-Men, Northstar had been an Alpha Flight character. You know, he showed up in X-Men stuff here and there. But if you had asked anyone in, you know, 1999, is Northstar an X-Men character? They'd probably say, oh, he's more of an Alpha Flight character. 20 years later, he's an X-Men character. Yeah. Even though well, he's uh, currently in a book called Alpha Flight. But... Yeah, back, back in Alpha <laughs> Flight. <laughs> well, well, like, on, on that vein, like, final character question. So, Albert, like, was that sort of, like, a natural choice? Just given, like, how many, like, Wolverine clones and just, like, dead bodies Orcus has? It's just like, oh, it's the Wolverine guy. No, I'll actually... So, like I mentioned earlier, CB suggested to Jordan, oh, it'd be cool to use Albert in this. And it wasn't a mandate. He didn't say I had to. I feel like it's usually good wisdom if the editor-in-chief suggests Generally. something. Yeah. <laughs> you should try to figure out a cool way to make it work. Um, I love the Larry Hama, Mark Silvestri, Wolverine era. It's some of my favorite Wolverine solo stories of all time. And I think Albert and LCD are such a kooky combination of characters. Um, I did not realize when I integrated him just how many Wolverine clones and bodies were going to be around <laughs> during Fall of X. But... I feel like we should pretend it's intentional and a meta commentary on the overexposure of Wolverine throughout different periods of publishing. So uh, that's my line and I'm sticking to it. Uh, <laughs> but no, as you see, you know, he he's on that first cover. He and zero are separate by issue two. They are one gross parasitic organism. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not giving Albert the best time of his cybernetic life on this book. He is basically, a, a flesh and and metal mecha that zero is driving around um and as you see i've disassembled lcd so <laughs> the cast is not as big as it looks on the first cover yeah um 
No, definitely. And we'll we'll go with the meta commentary on Wolverine <laughs> over No, no, keep keep it all in. Yeah. Make sure people <laughs> watch me come to this uh uh conclusion. <laughs> well, we were just gonna ask a couple questions now about like your current like unlimited sort of run and arc. And it's just like what's what's the writing process like for an unlimited story because obviously it's scrolling as opposed to you know sequential versus just like writing like a regular comic it's not all that different on the scripting side uh the one thing you have to keep in mind is that you're not getting to so i write full script most writers at marvel today write full script um and that usually includes like suggestions about panel size or, or angling or you know sometimes you have ideas of how you see it visually on the page so with unlimited you know that it's limited to a it's unlimited is limited uh to a vertical scroll so you can't build up to a splash page in the same way you can't uh try to do an effect where it's like nine small panels and then boom you know a spread so you do have to keep that in mind but otherwise the writing is very similar um and with some of the artists they treat it very close to a traditional comic. I'm working on an upcoming limited right now where the artist is actually doing it all physically on an, on a board, um, but is then going to scan it and cut the panels out. So for that artist, it was helpful for them to be able to visualize how like a printed page would look. Uh, and then they're going to adapt it to the vertical scroll. Most of the artists who work on unlimited don't do that. Um, they're working on the vertical template from the start. Um, but otherwise they're not that different. It's, it's fun. Um, when you do one, that's a single story for six chapters, that's about the equivalent of a 36 page comic book. So, you know, an oversized issue on the most recent unlimited I did with Steph Williams and Noemi and Pete, um, we did six one shots. So those are pretty brief stories. I would say those equate to like maybe a 10 page print short, um, but because of the unique situation with this year's X-Men election losers, there wasn't really time for them to go on an adventure together before they got squished. <laughs> so we opted for a different approach there. And we're like, oh, yeah, let's try to do done-in-ones and, and just have fun and celebrate these characters. Well, today we got the announcement of Red Root and the first issue on Unlimited dropped. I mean, I feel that, like, today in particular a it's fortuitous <laughs> we have you yeah but b it it feels that like there was even a shift in the unlimited books that now like this was a story that has kind of been teased for a while and you and steve orlando and and yoshi are taking it on and it looks beautiful i i, I just i'm when people think of digital comics they never realize how great some of these issues are. And this one today is emblematic of that. So congratulations on the announcement that you guys are doing the Red Root Saga now. Thank you. Yeah, and working with Lynn and and Fur, the colorist, um, it was so fun and so unexpected because, you know, we got started before we knew who the art team was going to be. And this is a story, uh, Sunfire's Adventure in Otherworld, spins out of an issue of X-Men that Joshua Kassara drew. So, you know, it was inevitable that we're kind of picturing this Josh Kassara, like Conan kind of vibe, like high fantasy. And then Lynn does have like a, a much more sort of manga influenced approach that is not at all what we originally pictured. It ended up being so cool and really defining what this story looked like. And I think especially for a setting like Otherworld, where we've seen it in these fantasy contexts, kind of shifting the tone a little bit ended up being a really unique way to do this story. And part of Jordan's hope with Unlimited, you know, it's, it's great that you picked up on it being a bit of a shift, was that 
we could make unlimited I mean, there's been amazing work done on that line, I, and I've worked on this line, but I think it's had the tendency for readers to think, oh, these are kind of extra. These are like bonus. Like, yeah, this 100%. Is where, yeah, this is where you'd get a maggot story that you're not going to get in the print book. This is where you get a you know Hellfire uh, Loser story you're not going to get in the print book. This is where Sammy gets resurrected. <laughs> this is where Sammy gets resurrected, exactly. But we are trying to make it feel now, especially with Fall of X and moving into what we have planned for the spring, that these are essential parts of the line. Like you're going to get stories that are very closely connected. And it's nothing about the quality of the books because there have been super quality stories in Unlimited the whole time. But Steve and I are working really closely with Jerry for this story. We're working with Al for, you know, some other stuff coming up. We're working with Kieran Gillen to like, have all these things really fit into the print line and know that we're reflecting what's going on month to month in the books to the point where some things are going to line up where you're going to read something on Wednesday and the following Monday is going to pick up that story and go. Sunfire is one, obviously we had to wait for a little bit because these things have to be scheduled out a while in advance, but now we're like taken off. No, the synergy I think in today's issue is, is, is pretty obvious and and i agree with you i mean the stories on unlimited have been great they've been such a great experience to go on your phone and like the way they are but i as a long-term reader i think we've seen them as more additive to what we're getting and now slowly they have become more and more essential and and knowing canon so i mean again today's issue congratulations because i was reading it i haven't had full a full time to inhale it but just reading i was like oh this is big this is there there there's this weird editorial shift that you can tell and it looks great congratulations thank you as i mean okay. i've always been a sunfire fanboy yeah. like i've been really public about it in the past and this is the first time um in the slack where i basically was like pick me pick me because <laughs> it came up like oh you know we're going to do a sunfire story on unlimited and i was like oh man whoever gets to do that is really lucky i love I love Sunfire. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> Is this where you put the raising hand emoji? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm glad my my shamelessness uh, paid off and we got to do this story. I've seen on Twitter, like the ex-gays on ex-Twitter already thirsty over Shiro. <laughs> so Lynn made him very handsome. He's very handsome. And I... um, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's great to see Otherworld again and Mad Jim Jaspers and yeah. Oh, you can't see it here. I love I love the scene <laughs> of him and magic and magic is kind of like half there. Um, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And that's lifted straight from Jerry. You know, all that dialogue is Jerry's on the first page yeah. because we are picking right up with it um, because of the way X-Men 24 was written. You see where his quest starts and you see how it ends. And he left us all this really fun place in the middle to play with. Oh, gosh, I love that. Uh, speaking of fun places. Dazzler, the Dazzler uh, story you did, which I feel that like everyone, every Dazzler stand just loved it because that's what we want out of Allison Blair. What was it like writing that story? How did it come about? And also, was it a coincidence that it aired or it published the the week of the VMAs? That is a coincidence. I do not know anything about the VMAs. Clearly, that is fake VMAs. Yeah, uh, it's faux VMAs. It's faux faux VMAs. VMAs, Uh, Legally distinct VMAs. Um, I think actually, even in her first sketches, Noemi had like the the award said like music. (laughs) 
<laughs> like maybe we can just kind of scribble. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought VMAs or anything on, but I was reading it sure, yeah. at, at the mean, bar as I was watching the VMAs. It was or whatever to, they're called now, MTV, yeah. whatever. No, it was supposed VMAs. to suggest that or the yeah. Grammys or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, not to be funny. Like, obviously, yes, I'm a homosexual and I love <laughs> Dazzler, but my very first exposure to the X Men was Pride of the X Men, the pilot, the animated pilot oh, that. that didn't take off. Um, and Dazzler's in that because it really grows out of the Outback era. And uh, I've just loved Dazzler since I was a kid. I, a common trend for me was um, the action figures played a big role. The animated series played a big role. That was like my early fandom. And the characters who were often at the margins, like Sunfire, like he would appear you know, in the background of an episode. I had his toy, but like I didn't know that much about him. I just thought he was cool. And Dazzler, because I got this really formative taste of, oh, she's a main X-Men character. She's cool. She's zapping vines with her hands. But then she appears like twice in the animated series. And yeah. she wasn't very active in the comics in the early 90s. So uh, I just always had a fascination with her. It was actually wildly intimidating to do a story with her because I feel like any gay writer has more pressure on them if they're going to write a Dazzler story. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just this fun little thing to celebrate her. I think she often, I say it in the book, but like she gets treated like a punchline too often because she has those disco roots because she had rollerblades or roller skates. But like she supported a 75 issue solo series. A yeah. lot of X-Men can't say that. <laughs> no. A lot of X-Men, if you add up their solo series across three decades, can't say that. So there's a lot of I fun. Mean, I only think Nate Gray can also say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I mean Logan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Logan's got them both beat, but um <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted you. But for years, Dazzler was not treated as a joke. And if you go back and you read the original run, she's a really fun part of the dynamic. And then unfortunately, something happened in the 80s where it just became like, I think that's when we started to struggle with like uh, genuine feelings about things and shame and irony. And so that's when Dazzler started to have a rocky road. Um, but I was, I was really excited to get to write her for a couple pages. And uh, I'm real sad she got squished. <laughs> we are too. Trust. I, I would have liked too. to see what she could have done on the team, but we didn't clap hard enough. So Tinkerbell oh. died. <laughs> well you know here here on power of x-men we love a deep 90s cut um so i like cackled when i saw the executioner um because that's about as deep like deep a 90s cut as you can get what what made you bring back the executioner i had the toy as a kid so i thought he was yes. cool <laughs> he was cool you can put the the helmet on yeah. and his human head goes into his chest so you can put the helmet on um but no i i threw it to the slack and i was like okay we're writing these they're pretty low-key there hasn't been a villain in any of them yet is there some good anti-mutant bigot that hasn't showed up in krakoa yet or that we're not tying off anywhere else and he had briefly appeared in marauders and jerry was like well i'm not gonna use him again i was like yeah executioner <laughs> He is one of the best ex-villains ever. Scott, Sean and, and Hammy, they had no clue who Executioner <laughs> was. And it was like the world's best ex-villain. That's who. Well, the nice thing is his name is the Executioner. So yeah. even if you don't know, yeah. you know what his deal is when he shows up. <laughs> yeah, but but not an Executioner song at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, but you know, we, we we also do love like a two thousands deep cut. Like I grew up on the Academy X stuff, 
and I loved the Dazzler shout out to a producer, Mark Shepard, aka DJ. Uh, was that like a favorite of yours, or just like a nice like tie-in? I think I say as often as I can. I really loved the Academy X era. Um, yeah. If you had asked me, like you know, three years ago, like what book would I pitch to Krakoa? It, it would have been a teen-focused book. Like I would have loved to do some sort of Generation X or Academy X revival, um, you know, in whatever form. Because I just loved. I was. 12 13 14 15 when those books were coming out so that was what i could project myself onto of like oh here's a school with like hundreds of characters they all have names they have powers written down so a lot of them we've never seen them use their powers uh and i just thought it was really neat the funny thing with dj specifically though is there is a real human being named mark shepherd who does produce music in addition to other things so marvel copy editing was like is this a reference to this human and i was like no I've no, I've never heard of this guy. I don't know. This is a character. This is a teenager with headphones on. Um, so I'm glad we got to keep it despite that that little confusion. Oh. So, Steve, we, we are at the end of the interview. We have to ask, is there anything you can tease? I mean, the X-Men are going through Fall of X. We know we just got the big announcements for January. We, we're not inquiring about spoilers, but what are you allowed to sort of tease? What, what, what can we expect in the coming months with so much change? Yeah, I think there's actually a decent amount I can tease. Um, okay. Now that Sunfire is out, uh, keep keep looking for me on your digital devices. I'll say that. Um, Dark X-Men 2 is on stands now, and that's what I've thought of as the quiet issue. Mm-hmm. So from here on out, it just kind of gets more chaotic and bloodier. Yes. Um, this is also <laughs> the which... So, you know, Jonas and I, uh, we had been working on the book and I could not have asked for a better collaborator than Jonas Sharp and uh, Frank Martin, the colorist. And, you know, there's horrific things in the first couple issues, but around the time that he was done with issue two was when Russell's gala page came in of the team getting squished. And I sent it to Jonas on Instagram and I was like, we got to be grosser. We have to push the line. <laughs> no. Because there's there's something earlier in two um, when the Goblin Queen is is working on uh warren i had wanted more entrails and stuff and they're yeah. like oh, i don't think we can get a- away with that so when i got that page i was like grosser <laughs> like, if this is going in the gala we can do more viscera yes. um so it gets grosser as the series goes on uh i think a lot of the cameos are now out in the world so we're going to see more morlocks in the next issue we're going to see more of marisol Guerra in the next issue um chasms coming up in issue four um, but it's really just kind of fire and brimstone from here on out. I can also say that I've got a print book in the spring. So I will be back on stands. I can't yes. say that yet. Um, but I can also say, uh, because Jerry said it, that uh, Rachel Summers plays into some upcoming plans of mine. And uh, C- uh, Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock also play into some upcoming plans of mine. But not in the same place. So, But I'm not breaking them up. 